Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, ladies and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Can you Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So, um, today is a day of, of a few firsts. It's the first uh, brother team of guests. We don't usually do two guests at once, but this is sort of called for. This is also, uh, I would say in the last year, probably the most requested remnant I've gotten um, out there in the realm of the possible. Someone was saying in the comments the other day they'd love for me to get Leo Tolstoy on, and that would be hard. But uh, today we have a political scientist and a historian, intellectual historian, and they're here to talk about the myth of left and right, which is the title of their book. Um, and it's, so it's it's Verlin Lewis, you're the political scientist. Yeah. And Hiram, you're the uh, intellectual historian. Indeed. And um, I got to say, I, I love the name Hiram. Um, it is, to me, it's evocative of a guy sending back soup at a deli, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and, uh, um, I'm very excited to have you both on. And so why don't you guys go whichever order you can? I will be a traffic cop. Hopefully you guys, listeners will be able to distinguish your voices. I will try to use your names, but you can start either one of you. You've done the book tour stuff. You, you have your stick down. First question I always ask with people about their books is what's your book about? So what's your book about? Sure. Yeah. Happy to chime in there. Just first want to say thanks for having us on, uh, Jonah, longtime reader and fan of your work and of the dispatch, uh, more generally. So happy to hear some dispatchers out there have been recommending our, our book. Uh, so we make a really strong, radical, crazy, bold claim in our book. And the, uh, insanely iconoclastic claim of our book, get ready there's more than one issue in politics. Now, now of course, that seems obvious uh, on its face. But the problem with our political discourse today is that anytime we invoke left and right, progressive and conservative, we're invoking a unidimensional spectrum. And a unidimensional spectrum can, by definition, only model one thing. It can only measure one thing. Uh, but of course, politics is about lots of things. Now, I would say... I think we all recognize that there's something wrong with our politics right now, that uh, the discourse is confused, it's angry, it's vitriolic, and our parties are failing us, right? We're coming up to 2024. It looks like, for all intents and purposes, we're going to have a general election rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, who I would say are two of the worst presidents in American history. They've both been president before, and our two parties are going to nominate them again. So this is crazy. This is, and most Americans don't want the choice, right? It's like 70% of Americans do not want to vote, but choose between these two old men. So this is a breakdown in our politics, and yet our parties um, are 
providing these horrible choices to that. Why is that? Well, we think it has to do with the confusion brought on by the myth of left and right. If we use a totalitarian intellectual framework to discuss and think about politics, then we shouldn't be surprised to have totalitarian politics. Because the left-right spectrum totalizes and flattens everything into a unidimensional spectrum, and it creates this very simplistic narrative of heroes and villains. And so, Jonah, you're often uh, mentioning, which I think is a good point, the problems with uh, monocausal explanations, the problems with, uh, you know, Robespierre's line, which is, there are only two parties, the people and its enemies, and we have to go destroy our enemies. But that's the way both of our major political groups think and talk about politics today. They say there's just two ways of thinking, there's only two approaches. Um, But we, we know this is um, faults. And I think, Joni, you're a good example of this. Uh, your own politics do not fit either of the two bundles on offer by our two major tribes today, Team Red or Team Blue, right? So there obviously must be third or fourth, fifth, hundreds of different possible ways to bundle together issue positions. But our unidimensional spectrum tells us, no, there's just two ways that you can bundle together uh, issue positions. And so we think that's a false way of thinking about politics, and we also think it's causing a lot of harm to our political discourse. Let Hiram chime in here. Well, um, yeah, m- maybe if I could. You know, Jonah, we cited you in our book. I don't know if you noticed that. but Oh, I, um, I noticed. We're going to get to that. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll get to that in due course. <laughs> you probably think we miscited you. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons the cult of Trump has taken over the Republican Party, because if indeed there's just one issue in politics— then if Trump is far right, well, then he's, you know, if he's an extreme right winger, well, then he's extremely good. And so people don't have to look at the individual policies he's doing and say, do I agree, disagree? They simply say, you know, every time the people in the blue tribe talk about Trump as being an extreme right winger, he gains more followers because that means extremely good. If there's just one issue, it means he's taking that one good issue to an extreme. Um, but if you look at it in the correct approach, which is not in terms of a line, but in terms of bundles, you can see that Trump has a distinct bundle of issues that is different than the Reaganite bundle, which is different than the Goldwaterite bundle, which is different than the Taftite bundle. And these, <laughs> it's not just one issue. There are many, many bundles of issues. And so we're talking about changing our framework from lines to bundles. So at, with that, I, I want to hear what uh, questions you have. Yeah, sure. Um, so again, just to get to orient people to the argument, which again, I have I was telling you guys before we started recording, um, I'm in deep agreement about some things, and I'm sympathetic about others. And as we can get into we, when we get further into the weeds, um, we can explore some of that. Um, but just for for the sake of giving the thesis room to breathe, can you walk through some of the ways in which what defines left and right has changed over time, last century, century and a half, however you want to go at it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's no issue in politics that you can't look back in history and say, you know, people who call themselves left wing used to believe the opposite of what they do now, and the same uh, with right wing. So I think Donald Trump is a good uh, example of this. It's a good illustration of this principle. Uh, so everyone talks about Donald Trump being an extreme right winger, okay? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean he's taken Barry Goldwater's ideas about limited government and taken them to the extreme? Well, no, of course, when he was president, he drastically increased uh, government spending. Uh, Does that mean he took the ideas of being a fiscal hawk and he's just an extreme fiscal hawk? Well, no, of course not. He's just, uh, you know, increased deficits more than any president uh, before him, you know, historically high. Uh, Does that mean he took the 
you know, the 1990s uh, idea that conservatives had about character being important in elected officials. And he's taken that to the extreme and he's this extreme paragon of upstanding morality. Well, of course not. So what does it mean to say he's an extreme right winger? Well, would it make more sense to say he's moved the Republican Party to the left? I don't think that makes sense either, because, you know, take this as an example, right? So if, Joni, if you believe in limited government, constitutional government, free markets, individual rights, property rights, you know, all these things, and you went around saying, well, that I'm an extreme liberal, right? Because in the 19th century, that's what liberal meant. You'd be confusing people. No one would know what you're talking about. Oh, you're an extreme liberal, so you extremely agree with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden. No, you believe the opposite of those things. The meaning of the term has changed. And I think the same problem has happened uh, with conservatism. If you go around and you know want to tell people that you have this, the views of Barry Goldwater and you're an extreme conservative, people think, well, no, you, you think the 2020 election was stolen. You think we should increase import taxes you think that uh, character doesn't matter in elected officials. You think we should increase the size of the state and use the powers of the state to push policy down other people's throats. So I, I think these terms, because they are inherently evolutionary, because they get attached to political parties, that's why they're inherently evolutionary, their, their meaning is constantly changing. So in the 20th century, liberalism came to mean the exact opposite of what it had meant when Thomas Jefferson called himself a liberal in the 19th century. And in the 21st century, I believe conservatism has come to mean the opposite of what it meant in the 1960s when Barry Goldwater called himself a conservative. I ran into some of these problems when I, in my first book, you know, which was writing about fascism. Everyone told me, oh, you got to go back and read the old right, right, and understand where they were coming from and all this kind of stuff. And then you go back and you read the old right. Virtually all of them, if you hold your definitions constant about what you think left and right mean, they all were pretty left-wing, <laughs> or nearly all of them were pretty left-wing. You know, it's funny, uh, Ron Radosh did this famous book, well, famous among nerds, uh, Prophets of the Right. And he looked at people like J.T. Flynn and and others, and like J.T. Flynn was, was a man of the left in the 1930s, he wrote for the New Republic, he wrote this column called Other People's Money. When he tried to write for National Review, when it was founded, Buckley was like, yeah, we don't want any of that noise. It's very difficult to uh, understand if you if you hold the constant they hold say circa 2015 definitions of left and right and you look back at the progressive era you're going to get a nosebleed because it just makes you know sense the the most ardent you know, progressives Josephus Daniels and 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 um uh you know all the guys around Woodrow Wilson and Crowley they were for all sorts of industrial reforms and welfare state stuff they were also really into eugenics and pretty hardcore racist. And meanwhile, like Republicans were, you know, much better on race stuff than Democrats were. And it just, it, I, so I agree with you on the problem with all this, but I, and look, this podcast is called the remnant for a reason. It's because the right has gone someplace that I don't want to be part of um, in, in political respects. So the first question I have for you is, is there a major industrialized democracy that doesn't use left and right? Well, um, that's a question for Verlin. He's more into the international stuff. Um, I don't know. But look, we do see historically that left and right, this metaphor, right, the, the politics, you frame it on a single line. We do find that it spreads with European ideas, that you can't find left and right before 
before the French Revolution. And then in countries where left and right has taken hold, which is an advanced place like, say, China, it didn't exist until Western ideas infiltrated. So you had all these, you know, Communist Party members like, you know, Zhou Enlai going to France to get their training um, and, and, and learn Marxist dogmas. And then they came back to China and taught everybody that politics was about one big thing and that there was a magic line that could that could model all issues. So, I mean, if there if it is, it's not inevitable and it's not natural. It's simply that um, Western imperialism spread these ideas. Now, when I say it's not natural, let me add a qualification there, because we do believe that the two party system or at least having two coalitions in politics is natural simply because in, in democracies and most industrialized countries are you're trying to get to 51 percent in order to get a majority. And the way to do that is to build coalitions uh, until you have two big coalitions and one can get 51%. And so you have the rule opposed nature of politics. And that very dynamics is going to lead to thinking in terms of parties. That's fine. The problem is, is we have a, then a natural tendency to mistake parties for polls. And so, yes, there are two parties and there's two baskets of issues, but this doesn't mean that we can model all issues on a single spectrum. It doesn't mean there's just one issue, but it's a very common mistake because two tribes is kind of natural. And so thinking in terms of a single spectrum then becomes natural. Well, just to add on to what Hiram was saying, uh, yeah, and this you know framework, of course, emerges in the French Revolution, spreads a little bit around the continent in Europe in the 19th century and becomes uh, really popular among Bolshevik revolutionaries in Russia in, in the 1910s, and then self-identifying progressive intellectuals and journalists in the 1920s import this model uh, from Russian communists into America in the 1920s. We think this is a mistake. It's a flawed framework, and uh, it's doing a lot of harm to our political discourse. Yeah, so I, I got into some of this in, in my book, Liberal Fascism, insofar as Bolsheviks in the 1930s, when they looked at fascism, they explicitly called it right-wing socialism. You know, that was Trotsky, Stalin, all those guys. Um, they saw it as a threat to left-wing socialism, their socialism, right? And so it became, it was sort of the logic of the cancer cell. It became the, got to this point where people, and I think part of this had to do with the histor the, the, the context at the time where statism was in the saddle sort of everywhere. And so it was conducive to this sort of thinking, but then you get to this problem where the socialism stuff kind of gets sawed off and fascism, national socialism, Nazism, um, just get called right wing. And there's nothing in the American political or very, very, very little in the American political tradition that says that conservatism, um, has much in common with, with Nazism. And you do a really good job of sort of walking the readers through that. Um, I just want to, for, for explication, you have two different definitions of ideology. One is the essentialist, essentialist definition, which says that people form into these tribes because they agree on a fixed set of principles. And then the other one is the social theory, which says that they join a tribe and the principles are malleable to whatever the needs mm -hmm. of that tribe are. And so you write, the social theory, by contrast, predicts that since the positions associated with left and right are not natural, but social, we should expect to see that those on the left and, and right changing their view, political views depending on what their team is doing. Political be beliefs, it predicts, will be contingent on social cues. This is exactly what we find. Political scientists Michael Barber and Jeremy Pope showed that conservatives would strongly agree with a policy, such as raising the minimum wage, when told that Donald Trump supported it, but would strongly disagree with that same policy when told that Donald Trump opposed it. 
there was no co commitment to an essential principle such as limited government or free markets underlying their policy preferences, but only tribal solidarity. I agree with all that. And it's been a source of great frustration for me, right? That, you know, it was a real source of frustration for Ron DeSantis, <laughs> where he would do these focus groups and he would say 70% of the focus groups would agree that the COVID lockdowns were bad. But then if you say the Trump COVID lockdowns were bad, 70% would disagree, right? And that's just what you political scientist types call stupid. But that's sort of where we are. Um, I guess where I'm going to push, start with the pushing back a little bit is that I think that these sorts of problems, which are real, and you do a very persuasive job of documenting them, are downstream of the core drivers of this. I don't think the stuff about Trump is driven by the problems with the left-right spectrum. It's driven by the problems of populism, cults of personality, and, you know, and tribalism, which we agree on the tribalism part. I have no problem as someone who's, who holds on to left and right softly. I don't have a really tight grip on it because I think there are huge problems with it. Um, I have no problem with just saying these people are wrong, right? Or they're confused or they're caught up in a fever in the moment. Um, but that doesn't mean the whole conceptual framework of left and right is therefore indicted. What do you say to that? I'd say it's absolutely indicted. I mean, think about what you were just talking about. In your book, Liberal Fascism, I think does – we can talk about the errors. You know, Verlin and I have one big disagreement with your book, even though we both enjoyed it immensely. But look, I mean, I was talking to a guy the other day, and unfortunately, this is very common, and you've run into this yourself. And this guy was he, – he's a college professor like me, right? Very intelligent, uh, smart guy. And he says um, – he says, I have this friend and he's, he's, he's really, really free market. My gosh, he is so free market. He's so far to the right. He's out there with Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. Look, I mean, this is ridiculous. Adolf Hitler was a, a socialist. The idea that if you take free markets too far, you suddenly become an anti-Semite and want to kill Jews. I mean, the, the example we continuously use because it's so illustrative is people keep saying that Milton Friedman was on the radical right and Nancy McLean's book about the radical right, this and that. Which is a very bad right book. Libertarians. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible precisely because she is indoctrinated with the left-right framework. If she would throw that out and just talk about issues, it, it could have been a good book. But she has, like most of my colleagues in history, um, and she's under this left-right delusion. Okay, so the idea being that, that Adolf Hitler is far-right, Milton Friedman is far-right. But if you go through and look at what Milton Friedman believed and looked at what Adolf Hitler believed, they're exactly opposite on every point. Uh, Milton Friedman was a quasi-pacifist. Uh, of course, Adolf Hitler was a militarist. Milton Friedman was a capitalist. Adolf Hitler was a socialist. And you just go through, and they have nothing in common. And so it seems that your tactic in liberal fascism was to point that out and say, look, Hitler was actually on the left. To which we would say, well, that's a mistake too, because Hitler had a distinct bundle of issues. National socialist policies had a hundred different issues in there that Adolf Hitler believed strongly in. Um, today's Republican Party has a hundred different distinct issues. It's another distinct bundle. Are some of the Republican Party today, are some of their issues going to overlap with what Hitler believed? Sure. Are some of the Democratic Party? Sure. But to say there's just one issue and today's Democratic Party is more like Hitler on that one issue, we think is a big mistake. So instead of placing Hitler on a line and putting him on the left side of a line, it's much more fruitful to say, let's talk about what national socialism entailed. And then if you want to make current comparisons to current things, let's talk about what those entail. And so you say you hold to the political spectrum lightly. I would say get rid of it completely because I think it's extremely rhetorical, dis, rhetorically disadvantageous for people like yourself, because you're trying to make this case for classical liberalism, as are we. We're classical liberals, liberals as well. And yet the classical liberal case is um, tainted 
with guilt by association with Hitler. It has nothing to do with it. But when we think that there's just one issue in politics, you place classical liberals on the same side as Hitler. Look, if I was Satan and I said, I'm going to try to destroy freedom in any way I can, I would create the political spectrum. To make, to, make, to make it look like freedom taken too far suddenly becomes gas chambers it is nutty, and yet it's been extremely effective, and most people believe it, and pretty much every elementary school in this country teaches this idea that the Republican Party is on the center right, but if you take those too far, you're at Adolf Hitler, and the Republican Party believes in free markets, but take those too far, and suddenly you're Adolf Hitler. This is absurd. It's ridiculous, and the sooner we get rid of this ridiculous model, the better off we'll be as a society. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, I want to get to that point in a second, but since you brought up um, uh, my book and that you're mentioned mentioning me in your book you write uh on this point for instance andrew sullivan insists that barack obama is actually a true conservative bruce bartlett insists that george w bush is actually a true liberal jonah goldberg insists that adolf hitler was truly on the left and harry osmus insists that karl marx was truly on the right such attempts to assert private definitions of ideology produce conceptual muddling now could it be that that maybe what I was doing was actually not conceptual muddy, muddy, muddling, but conceptual clarification, because um, 
I defined my terms, right? I wasn't necessarily saying that Adolf Hitler was a person of the left or the left tradition, although you can make that argument. He was part of the revolutionary tradition and all these kinds of things. What I was saying is if you define leftism as these things and you look at Adolf Hitler, he fits it better than if you define conservatism with these things. And this is one of the things I got in responses to my book was it made people very mad that I defined my terms, that I actually said, okay, this is what I mean by right. And this is what I mean by left. And I don't see, I mean, I understand if you want to just, if you want to get rid of left and right, which I'd be happy to if the world, if, if I thought that were possible. <laughs> but it seems to me the, the job of a, of, a, of a writer, an intellectual, whatever, is if you were going to make an argument to define your terms rather than rely on these BS asso fake associations, it's what I was trying to do was point out that they're BS associations. So I, I don't, I don't think it's a private definition. It's an explicit definition rather than an implicit one that I was, that I'm willing to defend. Yeah, I'd say we're completely sympathetic um, to your concerns, right? And I think Jeff Flake is doing something similar where he writes this book. Yeah. And if you've read it, The Conscience of a Conservative, where he defines this term and he basically identifies conservatism, you know, true conservatism, as the Barry Goldwater version of conservatism. And he wants to go through and show why Donald Trump and the MAGA crowd are not conservatives. And, you know, I wish him the best of luck and, and Godspeed to him, but I don't think it's going to work because we are in a political culture and in a context in which, you know, every major new, uh, news media outlet thinks of Donald Trump as right wing. Uh, both of our major political parties have bought into this, ordinary people. So if we go out and have our you know, own definitions to find your terms, which is great. But if you start using those labels, people aren't going to understand what you're talking about, right? So if Fox News says he's a conservative, if the Conservative Political Action Conference says Donald Trump is a conservative, if the Republican National Committee says, well, that's the public meaning of the word. And I think, unfortunately, I think conservatism has taken a turn for the worse uh, in the past 20 years. Uh, but I think you're, we limit our ability to communicate clearly with people when we use uh, these terms that carry with them all of this baggage. And I and I would just add, you know, we would have been more careful about this, by the way, Jonah, if we were writing it now, because I think you make a very good point that it is possible to define terms in a limited way under certain contexts um, uh, as you did, right? The problem is, is I think you were inviting the criticism you've received from your book by using those terms because the public has an association with left and right, liberal and conservative. And you're saying, no, I'm using it in a different way. I mean, it's as, as if in my classroom, I was held up a cigarette and said, for the purpose of this class, we're going to talk about we're going to call this a strawberry. And then I went on and said about how strawberries cause cancer. And then people would look and say, this, this nutty professor is saying that strawberries cause cancer. What's he talking about? You know, I kind of invited that by trying to have a private conversation of defining my terms differently than, than public usage. So we think it's just a more effective rhetorical strategy to, instead of using these terms and inviting the confusion that's going to happen. I mean, again, you were being conceptually clear in your book, but I think in the larger society, it created conceptual muddling. And so I, wouldn't it be better to just discard those terms and, and, and use different terms altogether to avoid that conceptual muddling? I, I guess that's my question for you. Yeah, no, look, I, I, like, I, I think it's fair. And I've said a lot of times on this podcast, there may come a day, and I think it's more likely than not, you know, if current trends continue, where I just have to give up the term conservative, right? <laughs> um, and I've been thinking about writing a book about some of this stuff because... I've gotten, I went on this really weird kick about the revolutions of 1848. And it, it turns out that like, it was around this time that Americans started using the word conservative 
in earnest. And what's interesting is that it really wasn't a left-right thing so much as, um, you know, it's like the Chartists and those kinds of guys, when they came to the United States, a lot of them started calling themselves conservative because what they were fighting for in England, they got in America. This gets to, um, you know, you, you guys cite Sam Huntington a bunch in the book. And um, I don't particularly disagree with some of your points about, about Huntington, but I thought it was interesting given what your book's about and your views on ideology that you don't mention his sort of seminal essay, Conservatism as an Ideology. And he makes the point in there, which is echoed in Hayek's Why I'm Not a Conservative, that conservatism is one of the only concepts out there, uh, shared, shares this with radicalism, that is almost entirely contextual, subjective, relative, right? A conservative in Portugal wants to preserve monarchy and authoritarian rule or whatever. The conservatives on the Politburo were the most doctrinaire communists. And conservatives in America for a very long time wanted to conserve and I hope that we'll get back to that, uh, you know, the basic liberal principles of the American founding, which is why Hayek says, only in America can you call yourself a conservative and be on the side of liberty. I still think that there's conceptual, forget left-right for a second, I still think there's conceptual value in that understanding of conservatism, and I think there is a real difference, temperamental, philosophical, ideological, between people of a conservative temperament. There's a real difference between conservatives and radicals right? I mean, that's a real thing. Radicals want to tear things down to the roots. They care less about what will replace it more than getting rid of whatever, what, are, what is the institutions around them today. Conservatives want to build on what exists. Um, they want to incorporate the, they want to continue the successes and through a process of muddling through, as the Brits might say, um, build on them in constructive, you know, incremental reform kind of way. I don't, if, 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 if conservative and radical have to be thrown out, then we're just going to have to come up with new words that mean those things. Yeah, we, we are not in favor of, okay, so this is, <laughs> this gets to the heart of the issue. Because when you say conservative, immediately people think, oh, we're, there's one axis in politics. The one big thing that, that we're all arguing about is do we conserve things or throw things out? Our point is that's simply one axis. So is there such a thing, a real thing is conservative? Yes, but it's just one of many and not the only thing. I mean, there's also egalitarianism versus hierarchy, realism versus idealism. I mean, you just go on and on. There's there's literally thousands of of of, of kind of temperaments, thousands of inclinations, thousands of psychological dispositions, moral foundations, whatever you want to call them, that we humans are, are consist of, and those are all going to come to bear on our political views. And yet, the language of left and right and conservative liberal, which is associated with left and right, makes it seem as if that's the only thing. We're just dealing with this one axis of do we want to conserve things or do we want to overthrow things? And so our point is, okay, sure. And the, and the crucial point here is that what, you know, who wants to conserve things? The answer is everybody. 100% of the people in the human race believe in conserving things they like and getting rid of things they don't like. And, there, and so you say, well, can't we, you know, baseline status quo bias, this cognitive bias that people have actually when you look at status quo bias and ask who has more of it, conservatives or liberals, it turns out neither. <laughs> I mean, they both are equal in their status quo bias, depending upon what the status quo is. If the status quo is Roe v. Wade, then people who call themselves liberals are the most conservative people on the planet because they want to conserve a woman's right to choose, understandably. Um, who is it that currently wants to conserve the environment? 
and, and doesn't want to see this change. You know, and people like Gary Wills, he, who, by the way, calls himself a conservative. I'm mean, talking about conceptual muddling, but he's a doctrinaire Democratic Party ideologue. And yet he says, everything I believe is be- because I believe in conserving. And capitalism is very unconservative. And you know what, Jonah? He is 100% correct. Capitalism is a radical force. It, it shutters mom and pop stores. It, it outsources things overseas. It transforms. It gives us new technologies, new products, new, 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 new. It is a radical force. And so to say I'm conservative doesn't really tell you much. It simply pushes the question of what do you want to conserve? And Samuel Huntington in an interview on C-SPAN made exactly that point. When somebody says they're a conservative, you have to clarify and say what they want to conserve because everybody on this planet is a conservative as you're using the term. So is the conserve change dimension useful? Yes, as one dimension among many. And that's what we're asking for. And that's why we, if we could rewrite our book now, we wouldn't have used the term essentialist theory. We would use the term monist theory because the point we're trying to make is that there's more than one issue. And yet when we talk about, well, are you a conservative or a liberal? You either like to conserve things or change things. We're pretending about that politics is about just one thing when it's very clearly not. Yeah, I, I'm very sympathetic to that, but I also have no problem with the idea that I should define what it is I want to conserve. Right. And so I agree entirely with Wills. I don't say that very often. Um, I, I would I would rather ascribe that 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 insight to, to Joseph Strumpeter, who I think made it earlier and better. But um, but capitalism is a relentless force for change. And that's why in the Anglo-American context, when we talk about conservatives, one of the things they want to conserve is laissez faire capitalism in terms of public debates particularly on cable news networks, I'm 100% on your side. Um, they, they, you can almost hear IQ, IQ points evaporating like water on a skillet <laughs> when you watch some of these debates. And this was one of the reasons why I was so frustrated when I was at Fox News for so long during the rise of Trump is that they had an explicit policy. Um, I shouldn't say explicit, implicit policy. No one ever told me they were doing this, but it was very clear that the fatwa had gone forth that the people they wanted criticizing Trump had to be Democrats. What you got was this notion that, well, you know, I'm a good Republican, I'm a good conservative, and the only people I hear criticizing Trump are from the left. Therefore, the only criticisms of Trump are left-wing. And you get this sort of situation where I was sort of complicit in this because, I mean, I was literally, for a couple of years, I was like just not asked questions about Trump because they knew they wouldn't like the answers. And... So they had me come on and, you know, I criticize Nancy Pelosi, happy to criticize Nancy Pelosi. But like, um, but the impression that the average viewer got was, I haven't heard any principled conservative critiques of Donald Trump, therefore there must not be any. And that was a big driver of the redefining of what it means to be a conservative or a right winger or whatever, to basically be full scale Trumpism in every regard. And so I agree with you on all that. But if I'm going to sit down with you guys over coffee or on this podcast, I think there is utility in, you know, we can get into definitional squabbles, but there's still utility in terms like conservatism. Maybe maybe I have to go full George Will and just constantly say things like conservatism rightly understood or liberalism rightly understood to signal that my understanding of these things isn't necessarily what the layman's is. But don't you run into a problem? With what was it William James says that we have to think conceptually, we have to think in models and frameworks, because otherwise there's no way to sort out the bloom and buzz and confusion of of the real world. I I think there is utility in some of these labels, even if they're the, 
all their edges are getting really blunt and chipped. Well, I, I think that's, uh, you know, a, a common response we get to the arguments of the book is, well, okay, maybe left, right isn't perfect. Maybe it confuses a little bit. Uh, you know, maybe these terms are evolutionary, but we need something, right? We need some model. And our response to that is, well, it's true. We have to think in terms of models and concepts. That's that's the limitations of being human. Uh, but there's helpful models and there's harmful models. There's models that can uh, clarify things for us and there's models that can confuse things for us. And so we're saying left-right is one of those models that actually uh, is doing more harm than it is good. And you probably saw in, in the textbook we or in the book, we give the example of the four humors theory of medicine, right? Doctors for many centuries said, well, we need a model of human health to understand medicine and, and human biology. So let's use this model of, you know, four humors and we're going to balance, you know, blood and bile and phlegm and all this uh, nonsense. You know, and really intelligent people believed in this, right? The the leading doctors and, and physicians of those of that age believed in this, but it was a harmful model. It was doing more harm than good. It was causing doctors to bleed their patients to death. And we think that's something similar with the left-right model. Let me propose maybe a more useful model. Uh, and we use this metaphor sometimes uh, in, in book talks that we give. So imagine, uh, Jonah, you and Hiram and I go into the grocery store and a hundred other people. We go into the grocery store and we, you know, go grab our cart and we start going up and down the aisles and we want to buy groceries for the week, right? And we're going to start grabbing things off the shelf, the things that we want, the things that we like, the things we want to use to cook that week. Uh, when those hundred people show up at the cash register and each of them has, you know, 75 different items in their cart, whatever it is, uh, no one is going to have the exact same cart, right? We just all have different preferences. Some are going to be very similar. Some are going to be very different. No one's got the identical cart. That's fine. And uh, that, you know, that's preferences. That's human taste. I think we can see something like that in politics, right? There's hundreds of different issues and thousands of different ways to bundle together these issues. And if everyone begins with their own temperament, their own philosophy, their own life experiences, their own faith tradition, their own community, whatever it is, they start thinking through politics, everyone's going to come to their own bundle of issue positions. That's fine. Now, imagine you show up at the grocery store, and instead of being able to go inside, they meet you outside with two baskets, a red basket and a blue basket. They say, sorry, you can't go in and choose your own groceries. You just have to purchase one of these two baskets, red or blue. That's kind of like a two-party system. And there can be some good that comes from that. A rational person would say, okay, I have my own preferences. Neither of these two baskets, it would be you know, statistically impossible that either of them are going to have everything that I would have chosen. But I'm going to start sorting through each basket and see which of basket has more of the stuff I like than the other one. And I will choose the basket that has more of the stuff that I like than the other one. That's rational. And that's a two-party system. That's the way most people thought about politics for most of American history. But along come the 1920s and 30s, when self-identifying progressives import this left-right model from communists in Russia, and they say, no, 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 there's only one issue, and there's two sides to this one issue. And all of the issue positions in one party flow out of a good and enlightened philosophy. And all the issue positions in the other party flow out of an evil and benighted philosophy. And there's a philosophical coherence to everything in those two baskets. Well, if you showed up at the grocery store and you believed in the left-right spectrum or showed up at the voting booth and saw these two parties, it would be irrational to say, oh, everything in basket blue is good and better than everything in basket red. That would be irrational, but that's what we do when we talk about politics in terms of the left-right spectrum. And so to your point earlier, 
you know, you think the problem of politics isn't left-right thinking, but it's tribalism and populism. I entirely agree with you. Our politics is entirely too tribal and populist and authoritarian and, and unconstitutional. But our argument is that populism and tribalism and authoritarianism authoritarianism and totalitarianism actually flows out of left-right thinking. Because if you really believe that everything in your party's basket is better than everything in the other party's basket, then that will lead you to be like Robespierre, right? There's the people and the enemies. And politics isn't about open debate and dialogue and deliberation. It's how can I destroy someone who is evil and wrong about everything? And so I think that's one of the reasons that as we show in the book, the use of these intellectual framework left and right has increased exponentially since the 1950s and 60s in American politics. Um, the hostility and anger between our two parties has also increased uh, wildly. This gets into why I'm a soft subscriber to your argument rather than a hard subscriber to your argument. Um, insofar as um, I think it's entirely plausible and probably correct to say that the left-right thing fuels exacerbates a lot of these problems. Um, and at the same time, I'm not sure I agree that it is the prime mover of it. Let me look, there's a great British historian, Michael Burley, who's written a bunch of books about um, how basically uh, the wars of religion in Europe never ended. Um, they just sort of migrated into politics. And I, I think your point about importing left-right from Europe is a really useful and a good one. And it strikes people today to see when you, because you use this phrase a lot, that to say that politics is a one-issue thing in this left-right thing, you can see where it comes from if you go back and you look at where the arguments of sort of dialectical socialism and, and all these kinds of things is that, or even go back to Robespierre, there's this idea that there's a scientific nature to the progression of history which I think is actually a very religious orientation masquerading as a secular one. Um, and so the forces of history are leading us to some eschatological nirvana, some end state that is great. And so any, therefore, anybody who opposes us is, is uh, the enemy of all human kindness and decency because they are trying to keep us from the deliverance of the promised land. And you can see how left-right kind of can fit into that. I just don't know that that I'm convinced that it's because of the left-right thing so much as it is a cause of a what Gellin would call, you know, political religions. Is that we are um, as as formal traditional religion subsides, we are trying to find fill the holes in our souls through politics, and the left-right prism helps with that but but it is if we didn't have left right i'm not sure we wouldn't still be having this problem that is endemic to a lot of modernity yeah i mean human beings are are naturally tribal and they're naturally religious and spiritual right that you can't get rid of that that is a part of human nature but you can fill that hole with good things or bad things is our argument there's healthy tribes right your local church congregation your local service organization your local neighborhood whatever right that is healthy for you and causes you to get outside yourself and serve other people. And that makes you happy. And then there's unhealthy tribes. And so unfortunately we think the left right spectrum is giving people a false religion, an unhealthy attachment that this becomes their primary identity that I'm on the left and I'm a social justice warrior. And I'm, you know, pushing forward the cause of righteousness against those evil fascists on the right. 
that that's a that's an unhealthy tribal attachment. But we see it unfortunately in both of our tribes. And just to point to this um, bit about the hostility and anger, I also think it's interesting that the um, most anger and vitriol is often not directed against the cross partisans, but against the heretics within the midst. So, I mean, Jonah, you know this better than anyone. Uh, Team Red, I think, hates you more mm-hmm. than they hate Chuck Schumer, right? And even if you agree with, you know, 70, whatever it is, 65% of what Republicans are up to today, the fact that you are not 100% on board and not willing to swear allegiance to Trump means they really hate you because you are putting the lie to their illusion, their monist illusion, that there is some philosophy binding together all their issue positions, that everything that they believe has to go together. And you're saying, no, they don't have to go together. You guys are wrong about X, Y, and Z. You're right about A, B, and C. Right? So your rationality is is really a, uh, a thorn in their side, and I think is part of the reason there's so much anger towards dissenters within the tribes. Yeah, no, I, look, it's a very old phenomenon, right? In the, in the 1960s, the radical left um, hated left of center, vital center, liberal types more than they hated conservatives, who they largely sort of left alone. Um, because, and this was sort of, you know, it's also the story of of the Nazis, right? Is that they, the, the, the first rule in tribal power politics is to get rid of your closest rivals rather than your, your distant enemies. And so, you know, you had, you know, the Bolsheviks went after the Mensheviks first. So this is one of the criticism I really couldn't stand in, uh, of, of liberal fashion, people, fascism, people like Michael Tomaski would make this argument that, you know, when I said, you know, Hitler could be seen as a man of the left, it was like, Goldberg doesn't know that, you know, Hitler crushed independent labor unions and, you know, and put socialists in jail. And, you know, my response to that is, you know who else crushed independent labor unions? And put socialists in jail? Stalin. Stalin killed lots and lots of socialists. <laughs> you know, he probably killed more socialists than anybody alive because it's more about the consolidation of power than it is about ideological, you know, animosities. And and I guess that's sort of where I come from on this is that I see the, a lot of the things that you're describing as the problems with popular front politics, right? This idea, no enemies to my left, no enemies to my right, you know, that kind of thing. And, and weak commitment to ideology, not the problem with ideology, but the problem that people are are less committed to it than they should be. I, I, I want more dogmatism about some things in politics rather than less. And if if conservatives were more dogmatic about their commitment to the principles of the founding and of constitutionalism and of laissez-faire economics and all these other things, they wouldn't have fallen for Trump. Right. And so the 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 problems we have in our politics, let's say everyone you could snap your fingers and get people to stop using left, right. And we just call the Republican Party the Trumpist Party. We'd still have all of the problems that we we have with the Trumpist Party. Yeah. So so this idea that, um, you know, people think when you're thinking in terms of a left right spectrum, first of all, it gives you the delusion of omniscience. Right. It says if there's just one issue in politics, then I just have to be right about that one issue. And therefore, I have all the answers. So if if there's just one issue and it's social justice versus reaction, which is how mm-hmm. it's framed, by the way, 
then all I have to do is subscribe to social justice and I'm right about everything. I don't have to think about, you know, environmental policy, tax policy, abortion policy. I just have to sign up for whatever's considered left wing because I already know it's all correct and righteous. So it gives people the delusion of omniscience. And so people think they're being very principled, but in fact, they're being very tribal. So yeah, Jonah, you say it's it's not the prime mover, but we would counter that it is a mover and a, 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 a pretty big mover. And, and Again, I would think I would hope that people like you, um, because it seems to work to your rhetorical advantage most to embrace ac- pluralism in politics. I wrote a column about this in the Wall Street Journal where, where I was pointing out that, look, if you accept the terms of debate, that there's just one big issue and it's progress versus stopping progress, conservatives are going to lose every time. Why are 98 percent of historians consider themselves hardcore progressives and left wing? Because that story is just too attractive to historians. If you're a historian, you look back in the past and you see Abraham Lincoln abolishing slavery and Elizabeth Cady Stanton fighting for women's rights and and Martin Luther King getting civil rights for African-Americans. And you have the label progressive for all those. And you're saying, well, there's just one issue. And all these people were on the correct left wing side of that one issue. Well, then by golly, I better be on the left wing side. Therefore, I'm going to adopt everything the Democratic Party believes because it is the progressive party and, and it turns them into lemmings. But they don't know that that's what they're doing. Uh, they think they're being principled and committed to social justice and progress and, and fighting the evil Jonah Gold, Goldbergs of the world who are on the right wing and therefore on the wrong side of history. But that's not true. It's a delusion. And so we'd say a pluralist understanding of politics where you say there's the Jonah Goldberg bucket <laughs> of positions, which I'm largely sympathetic to. And then there's the Trump bucket of positions, which is different, which I'm very unsympathetic to. Then we can talk meaningfully about those things instead of just saying, well, they're all on the right and they're all against progress and they're all trying to fight the the beneficent direction of history. I mean, look, it's just a much rhetorically, it's a much better thing to think in terms of pluralism than it is monism. Monism is freedom destroying. Monism destroys all the things that the three of us here believe in and most of your listeners believe in. So I'd say jettison the monism and talk about the baskets. So again, you go back to your your your, your thing on Fox News where they said, well, we can't have criticisms of Trump from the right. You see the problem, seeing you in terms of one issue, and you're on this certain side of that one issue. But if you say, well, what about the Reaganite basket of positions, a Reaganite critique of Trump? That makes some sense. And that might have been allowed Mm. on Fox News. (laughs) <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that off air. Um, no, but look, I mean, I, I'm very sympathetic to this point. I, I really am. I mean, I, I, my friend Jay Nordlinger at National Review uh, always got exasperated with definitional arguments about conservatism. And so for clarity's sake, he'd always just say, look, I'm a Reaganite because there was an actual person with specific policies and a specific approach. And even though he was inconsistent on some abstract measure, right, you know, had some protectionist tendencies for political purposes when he needed to, and you can go down a long list. He didn't shrink the welfare state, blah, 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 blah. But it, it, it's more clarifying than just saying you're a conservative because it's grounded in an actual historical example. I'm very sympathetic to all of that. Um, I just, let me, let me back up and ask you this. Do you think ideology is a thing? What, how, what do you think, like, how, how would you define ideology? Yeah, so there's probably two most common misconceptions of our argument, which is an indictment of us in our book. We need to be more clear in that way. The The first misconception is that we are against political parties or a two-party system. We're not. Um, we're just against the delusion that the parties move around on a unidimensional spectrum. The second common misconception is that we don't believe people can be philosophical or principled in their politics. We, we disagree. We actually think someone is more likely to be philosophical and principled the more they give up the left-right monist illusion, right? So you can have your philosophy and your principles 
And that might derive from, you know, whatever it might be, your religious faith, your your temperament you talked about earlier, your own his life experiences. You can come into politics with your principles that you care about. And if you have distance, if you don't have this left-right spectrum that says everything Republicans believe is bound together by philosophy, everything Democrats believe is bound together by a philosophy, and you just have your principles, then you are willing, I think, and Jonah, you're a great example of this, to criticize Democrats when they violate your principles and criticize Republicans when they violate your principles. That doesn't hurt you or harm you because you are independent of this. Now, you might identify with one party more than the other because that basket has more of the stuff that you like than the other one, but you don't buy into this delusion. Ironically, the people who are most unprincipled and most partisan hacks are the people who most buy into the left-right way of thinking. And so you, you mentioned that study by uh, Barber and Pope that was in the American Political Science Review, where they had this control group, right, and this treatment group. And it's kind of a funny experiment. Um, you know, typically, social scientists lie to their, you know, lab subjects when they give them a treatment to say, oh, you know, so-and-so said this, but they didn't really say it. Donald Trump has actually taken both sides of every single issue. Right. So they could use actual quotes from him <laughs> to say he's in favor of raising the minimum wage or in favor of cutting it. You, you just... Is totally unprincipled. And as you pointed out, people who think of themselves as conservatives would be willing to raise the minimum wage if they think Donald Trump said it and be willing to cut it if they think Donald Trump did. The interesting thing, and this goes against the expectations of the researchers, is the, the more strongly you identified as a conservative, the more willing you were to change your position, right? So you would have thought, well, that's the unprincipled ideologues. They're just partisan hacks. They're Republicans, but they're not true conservatives. No, no, the people who actually think of themselves as the most extremely conservative are actually the most willing to change. And so what I think this points to, and we argue this in the book, is that when we talk about left and right, we're just talking about social groups. And being extremely left-wing just simply means extremely committed to the left-wing tribe. And being extremely right-wing just means extremely committed to the right-wing tribe. And so is Donald Trump a right-winger in that way of thinking? Yeah, I guess because he is extremely beloved by Team Red and extremely hated by Team Blue. But has nothing to do with substantive issue positions about, you know, individual freedom, the rule of law, separation of powers, government spending, anything, right? We're, we're, we're poaching violent agreement on some of this stuff, but... Um, uh, well, can I create some disagreement? Sure. Because sure. I have a question for you. Uh, look, because I, I wanted to ask you, you say you're still holding to the spectrum lightly. My question for you is what, what, according to you, is the spectrum measuring? We already kind of dismissed the change thing. So what is the one big thing that we're modeling when we say somebody's on the center left, the center right? I mean, what what do you think it's modeling, if not tribal affiliation? I want to be clear. I think you're absolutely correct that it is modeling tribal affiliation. I, I, my point is, I don't think that's the only thing it's modeling, right? And that's, I think, where we kind of disagree. I, that's why I say I'm in soft agreement with you, is that I think your approach has a lot of explanatory power, but as someone who doesn't like monocausal explanations. <laughs> I think you fall into the trap of having a monocausal explanation saying it's all coming from the left-right thing when I think that there's a basket of reasons um, that it's an overdetermined phenomenon and that we could get rid of left-right today or tomorrow and a lot of the things that you're describing in terms of the tribalism would still be there because the left-right thing is a useful schema for people to grab and impose on their tribalism but it's not, it's 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 not entirely necessary right you don't it's there's not some spell that they're under that if you could lift the spell all of a sudden 
they'll stop being tribal. There are lots of countries, lots of democracies. You know, uh, Huey Long in, in the 1930s, um, you know, Andrew Jackson. There are people who have cults of personality um, that uh, muck up people's cognitive abilities in all sorts of ways and inspire, you know, the, the Fuhrerprinzip in, in Germany, right? And so the Fuhrerprinzip is, is a real expression of a real human tendency that I don't think necessarily comes out of the left-right schema. It comes out of messianism and all sorts of other garbage problems of human nature. And so while I'm, I'm strongly sympathetic to a lot of your points about the problems with it, I, I don't consider it to be the, the beginning and the end of the problem. I think it is mapped onto the problem very strongly, but it is not the only explanation for the problem. And so when you ask me, I don't want to sound like I'm dodging the question. Look, I, I think, you know, I, and I know you guys write about it in the book. I, I think that one of the things that um, defines conservatism that isn't about the tribalism, um, and I'll do it with my George Wilton, conservatism rightly understood, um, is, uh, you know, is what I call comfort with contra contradiction, right? Is this ability to understand that not all good things go together which is something you guys agree on, right? And um, I'm very sympathetic to Thomas Sowell's constrained versus unconstrained, which doesn't map perfectly left-right, but it illuminates it to a certain extent. And so I, I think that there is the inherent in Anglo-American conservatism is a innate, deep skepticism towards utopian schemes, towards the perfectibility of man, towards the perfectibility of society. It recognizes that um, utopia, properly translated, means no place because it can't exist, and that all you can have is a good society, not a perfect society. And, um, and I think that that tendency, historically, maps imperfectly, but well, on what we would call conservatives, and, um, and, and what we would call progressives i mean the liberal part as you guys know as well as anybody gets really kind of muddied and annoying um but that's what i that, that is the part of left right that i um think is useful does it require me to make a lot of stipulations and clarifications to make that argument yes because of the mess that you guys document but i i still think there is explanatory value there Maybe I can just chime in here really quick um, with a couple points. So, first of all, you you said you know we're too overdetermined. Look, if we um, if we gave the suggestion we thought all our political problems will be solved by getting rid of the left right spectrum, um, we completely miscommunicated. That's it's an error on our part if you took that away uh, from our book because we do not in the slightest believe that. We do believe it would make it better, right? We are meliorists. We don't think that this is a a silver bullet that would solve everything because you're right. Tribalism is not going to go away. So what we're saying is that tribe creates ideology. But not that ideology creates tribe. Tribalism is, is, is built deep into our souls. But, you know, I have to say, Jonah, and you know people like this too. I know a lot of people like in my family, for instance, who have followed Trump because of the left-right delusion. They say, well, he's on the good side. He, he's a conservative, and therefore I have to support him. Uh, again, the delusion of one big issue, and he's on the good side of that one big issue, leads smart and good people to support bad and dumb people like Donald Trump. I think that's just a fact you'd have to agree with. So no, it doesn't create all our political problems, but it creates a lot of them. And a lot of the damage being done by Trump right now is done by the left-right delusion. Um, second point, you, you pointed out that um, 
you know, you got the Thomas Sowell's constrained versus unconstrained, and it's useful. M- my response to that would be, well, why not just say constrained versus unconstrained, right? Left and right gives these associations because there's a lot of unconstrained things that people consider to be on the right have done over the years. I mean, you remember as well as I do when George W. Bush stood up and said, my goal in foreign policy is to end tyranny in the world. This was an extremely unconstrained thing to say. So using Thomas Sowell's model, we could have said, okay, that's unconstrained. That's something I don't believe in as a constrained thinker, I, Jonah Goldberg. But when we have a left-right model, we say, well, he's on the right wing and Jonah Goldberg is on the right wing and it confuses things. So we that's one of our main um, points that we try to make in the book is it's possible to be granular. People say, no, 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 we need a simple model. We have to have some overarching framework. Actually, we don't. We don't do it in any other realm of life. We don't go into our closet and say, gee, which of my two outfits am I going to pick today? We can pick a shirt, a sweater, a shoe, so on and so forth. When people grocery shop, they do that. A great analogy is medicine. Doctors, you don't go into the doctor and they say, well, let's put you on the medical spectrum. Look, you're here on the center left. I mean, they say you got a broken bone. You, you've got cancer. They don't put broken bones and cancer on the same side of a spectrum and then treat you, you know, with chemotherapy for a fractured tibia. That's not the way it works because they go granular. So we're saying, why don't we do in politics what we do in every other realm of complex, complex realm of life? which is simply go granular. And instead of having to have these private definitions, well, when I say conservative, I mean this, but everyone else takes it as something else. Instead, just talk about individual issues. Are abortion, more, less abortion, higher, lower taxes. I mean, this is a useful way to discuss politics instead of trying to collapse it all into one. I don't know if that's helpful. No, I I, I get the point, Um, you know, but we do decide that we're going to wear clothes versus not wear clothes, right? My point is, is that what a lot of what you guys are describing is I guess the right term for it would be manichaeanism, right? This dividing the world between good and evil. I'm against doing that. I'm with you. Um, I just think that that is innate, innate to the human condition, um, and it's something to be on guard against at all times and in all places, because crooked temper of humanity and all that. Um, and I am totally with you that that the left-right thing contributes to it, and, and in some cases engenders it, to be sure, but um, getting rid of the left-right thing is not going to get rid of the Manichaeanism. And so, in defense of conservatism, rightly understood, um, when George Bush said that, when I was back at National Review, we criticized him for it. We said that this is, you know, Wilsonian utopianism run amok, and um, that it's, I remember, you know, Rich Lowry talking often about how this idea that you know, there's a neoconservative strain, and I don't like using neoconservative to describe foreign policy stuff, but that, that ship has sailed. Um, uh, there's a strain in, in neoconservative thinking, or Bush's thinking, if we want to ground it more narrowly, that all you have to do is scratch the surface of Middle Eastern man, and you'll find Western man lurking underneath. And that was a considered criticism from conservatives. And um, self-described conservatives at, you know, National Review, which considers itself to be, you know, trying to hold its own side accountable to established understandings of, of what it means to be a, a modern conservative, right? And so, I mean, Tom Sowell, he made this point about how, um, it's, it's, it's not in, uh, conflict divisions, but he's made it elsewhere, you know, that, Modern conservatism, the post-World War II conservatism, the conservatism that Nash writes about, became ideological in a way that pre-World War II conservatism was not, right? In in pre-World War II conservatism, you know, people like Russell Kirk would say, you know, you quote H. Stuart Hughes and say that, that 
you know, conservatism is the negation of ideology, right? And that, that, that ideology, he would use the way ideology, the way Napoleon used ideology as some sort of spell that ensorcels people and that kind of stuff. And, but post-World War II, ideology becomes this different thing. It's basically, um, it's a set of principles that, uh, as, as Soul put it, you need an ideology to beat an ideology. And there was this idea that it comes out of the Cold War, um, and it is necessary to fight, you know, to sort of reorient people to understand what is uniquely American, what is what is our system of government, our way of life, and all this kind of stuff. And it was an attempt to, and, and as a domestic analog about fighting progressivism, um, I would say that the re- modern modern conservatism, to a certain extent, is the result not so much of the left-right thinking, but of the left's thinking about ideology and that the right does its mirroring of it, right? That it stems from this idea that comes from the left and conservatives are like, crap, if we're going to have, if we're going to do it this way, we got to come up with our own competing ideology. And um, I understand lamenting that. I just don't know what the, that, that, I don't think you could put the toothpaste back in the tube necessarily. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a fair point, right? This is, uh, we're fighting an uphill battle, trying to get people to give up the left-right spectrum. And, uh, you know, we we shouldn't be uh, utopian either and think that we're going to be able to change everyone's language. But I think we, we do take some comfort in the fact that for most of American history, people didn't think about politics in terms of a left-right spectrum. This is a relatively new phenomenon. And so part of us thinks, well, if we've done it before, why can't we do it again? Um and the other thing that I'm hopeful is that as people become more and more disenchanted or frustrated with the, uh, the behavior of our two major parties, both of our major parties are corrupt, both um, have no philosophical commitment to constitutionalism, to individual rights, to the rule of law. Uh, they've both become statist, totalitarian, you know, the ends justify the means, ideologues, to, u- to use that term, uh, that, that especially maybe young people look at this and say, look, We've got to come up with a new way to talk about politics. We can't go on like this. Um, you know, it, it might be wishful thinking, but uh, if, even if we can get a few people uh, to give up the spectrum, we're hopeful that it would improve their quality of life. It'll make them happier, less angry, uh, less vicious toward their neighbors. So, and and your point is that you know we know it's possible. You say it's utopian, but how can it be utopian when when this is what we had before 1920 in the United States? So to get back to one of your first questions, Joni, you asked, can you name one industrialized democracy that doesn't have the left right spectrum? And I can't. The United States of America before 1920, we didn't have it. It was imported, <laughs> right? It it was brought here by socialists, and it serves the socialist cause. And so I'm I'm frustrated with people like Russell Kirk, who I guess you see as kind of a hero. He's one of the great villains no, of I our don't. story. Oh, okay, good. Because to us, he's one of the great villains because he conceded the argument. He said, you know what, Arthur Schlesinger, you know what, all you progressives, you're right. There is just one big issue in politics. You're either in favor of, of freedom and growing change and social justice, or you're against it. And, and you know, we're standing athwart history yelling stop, as the, as the National Review said in 1955. And to us, that just conceded the entire argument. So you say, well, well, conservatism was invented as kind of a counter to the liberal narrative. Yes, but it played into the liberal narrative's hands. And the failures of conservatism, like you say, well, conservatives about limited government and stuff, Government has not been limited. Even Ronald Reagan couldn't do it. It has completely failed. And we would say because the rhetorical strategy has been completely wrong. When you when you align the cause of limited government, which we believe in, with Adolf Hitler and with standing against history and with stopping progress, you're going to lose. 
And that's why the cause of limited government and classical liberalism has been losing in America. And right now, I mean, it just looks like it's on the ropes. I mean, Trump and Biden are both against it and they're the nominees of our two major parties. So that that would be kind of a, a, a coda to our point. I think we're seeing our point and the, and the, and the harms of the political spectrum played out real time in our national politics right now. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to all that. I mean, I, I very much am. And I think that, I, I do think it's worth pointing, pushing back a little bit on, I mean, the, Will Herberg just said man was homo religio because he is inherently religious. Um, I think man might be homo telogio because like, we love teleology about things, right? And, that, that, and there's a strain of conservative thought that I've always had a problem with, which is that we've just inexorably and steadily lost all of our freedoms, right? That freedom has been one long decline because of the growth of the state or whatever. And the simple fact is, is that it's not true, right? I mean, and by some measures, we're much freer than we used to be. Certainly if you're <laughs> female or black, um, the story of the last hundred years is not one of eroding freedoms. Um, and this, so I, you know, I'm a sci-fi nerd. You know, I, I like the idea of a golden path where history does not repeat itself and where we are not on one that that you can never sort of impose these things um, on all of humanity ever again. I, I, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that the left-right stuff is a big part of the problem. And I learned a lot from you guys on this. I mean, it was, it was helpful. It's one of the, I'm, I'm sure you've run into this from time to time. There should be a German word for it of reading a book after you've written your book that you wish you could have read before you wrote your book. <laughs> um, very frustrating kind of thing. Um, but uh, I think that the, the, this gets to my point about comfort with contradiction is that in a pluralistic society, not all good things are going to go together and that, you know, we're going to have uh, trade-offs everywhere because the constrained vision says, you know, there, every choice is a, is a choice between, I always used to tell my daughter, you know, look, there are only two kinds of hard decisions in life, choices between two really good things or choices between two really bad things. There's, there's, uh, you know, a choice between a really good thing and a really bad thing is not a hard choice by, you know, axiomatically, right? And the problem with, so I would say that, you know, the, the left-right thing, I agree with you, it is a totalizing ideology. It is this idea and the, what, what Huntington called the unity of goodness, that all good things go together. And I reject that because there are bad things that go, um, with good things. Every bad thing has a good silver lining and every good thing has a bad silver lining, right? I mean, and you can look at anything in history um, to support that. I mean, I, I don't want to repeat myself. So like my view of ideology, and I wrote about this in my underrated second book, is that it's, it's really just a checklist of your priors. It's a checklist of questions you ask about things, you know, and um, does this expand freedom or constrain freedom? Does this cost too much or too little, right? And that a, there is a difference between a conservative, small c, if you want to put it that way, conservative ideology, and um, and a uh, progressive ideology. It's, it's, and I've always had a problem with treatment of ideology as this totalizing, all-explanatory thing. And I think that your guys are very persuasive that the left-right thing is one of the things that really calcifies that, that form of thinking. Yeah, Jonah. So if you're right, if you know, if conservatism means comfort with contradiction, 
uh, then the conservative thing to do would be to get rid of the left-right spectrum. <laughs> right? <laughs> fair. No, that's fair. Because that's totally fair. And says that there is no contradictions, that all these things have to go together uh, as a matter of course. That's totally fair. That, and look, if, if, I, if I thought I could get rid of it, I probably would. Um, I, you've persuaded me on that. But then you just run into the sort of the problem, we can call it the journalistic problem, right? Is like, it's really easy shorthand that people understand, you know, and I think you guys would say, you know, like de Tocqueville would call it a clear but false idea, but it's really clear, right? And so when you start writing about what's going on on the right, it's very difficult not to use the word right in that. And if you guys have lists of adjectives that we could use uh, to replace it with, I'll take it under advisement with my colleagues at the dispatch. I mean, we mentioned a couple, um, right? Because I think you're correct that anytime someone rationally, not just nonsensically, but rationally uses these terms left and right, they're referring to a social group. Right? That, that's the only way you can do it in a reasonable way. And we would say, well, let's use labels and terms that imply that we are talking about a social group. Rather that imply that there's some philosophy binding together all these people's views. So Republicans and Democrats, I think, implies that we're talking about a social group. Team Red and Team Blue, I think, does that. Those are the our preferred uh, labels because it implies something that's true about these people that they're associating together for social reasons, um, and it, it doesn't imply something false that there's just one issue in politics and that there's only two ways to approach politics. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we say that in the book that, look, if you're using these in a social sense, if you if you say, for instance, this guy's on the right. OK, that means he associates with the right wing tribe. He's he's a Republican. He, mm -hmm. he, this and that. Fine. That makes sense. The problem is, is that has the associations of a spectrum. And so we can't help but then lapse into an, an essentialist way of thinking. So we don't know we're doing it, but we're using it in a social sense one second. And the next second, we're using it in an essentialist sense. So you say he's on the right. And then a few minutes later, somebody will say the Republican Party has moved to the right or America moved to the right during the Reagan years. And we don't know we're doing that. And so if we're using it in an entirely social sense, yeah, you're right. It would be helpful. So what we say is, you know, if you're going to categorize what you have to do, and I think that's one of your main points here, what's the point we agree with? You have to categorize people. If you can find a way to categorize them instead of saying left and right and, and instead categorize them appropriately according to their tribe, then that would be useful because it would jettison the essentialist connotations of what you're trying to communicate. So uh, we're, what we, Verlin and I do is we say he's tribe red, he's tribe blue. That, <laughs> that sticks it with the tribal associations from the get-go. And so then we don't get into this you know, silly idea that he sits somewhere on a spectrum on the one big issue. So that's one thing to do. Like you say, Jonah, is it possible? Probably not. Probably not. We're fighting a fool's errand. That's how we talk to each other. But nobody else talks that way. Even people who agree with us, right? I mean, the guy from, um, you know, the Tangle, what, what's his name again? Uh, Isaac Saul. Or, yeah. And, and he totally agreed with us. And yet every day on his podcast and his newsletter, he's talking about people on the left and people on the right. And so, you know, we are fighting an uphill battle. We recognize that. Yeah, look, I mean, I wrote liberal fascism largely to get people to stop calling conservatives fascist or using fascism as a meaningful political label. And I failed utterly. Um, and in fact, I made the problem worse because it led millions of conservatives to start calling left wingers fascists, too. And it was like, like, uh, it, it's rolling boulders uphill. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I do want to ask one sort of remnant bingo card question to you guys. Um, the degradation, the entropy, whatever, of the political parties. I'm very much on the team that says that this is because the parties are too weak, not because they're too strong, right? That... Uh, strong partisanship flows from weak parties. And the 19th century understanding or the, the Madisonian understanding of parties, uh, the lessons of the era of, of great feel, good feelings, whatever that was called, um, was that parties are supposed to be coalitions of interests. And, um, and the parties themselves have a deep and abiding sort of fiduciary interest in protecting the party, right? And of of having some sort of consistency, wanting to get candidates, good candidates who can get elected, right? And one of the reasons Trump is possible, so this is this is part of my non, this is my polycausal explanation, is one of the reasons you get Trump isn't necessarily purely because of the left-right thing, although yes, that contributed to it. It's that the party's lost sight, the, first of all, they lost the power, because of campaign finance and um, reforms and and primary systems, um, but they they lost that sense that they have to protect their brand. And a healthy party fifty years ago would not have allowed Donald Trump to run. It would not allow the Democratic Party wouldn't allow Bernie Sanders to run. It just said, "Look, you're not a Republican. You're not a you know, or you're not a Democrat." And you you know, Bernie Sanders made lives miserable, made Democrats' lives miserable for decades as a socialist jackwad. And then he says, "No, I want to run for president, so I'm going to call myself a Democrat." They could have just said, "No, you're not." I, people ask me. I use this example all the time. People ask me why that um George Santos guy was why Republicans would even allow him to run, and I was like, because he paid the $35 fee and filled out a form, right? <laughs> like, like parties. And so anyway, I think, you know, my view is sort of that Orwell line, which is also on the bingo card, which says a man can feel himself be a man can take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure and become all the more of a failure because he drinks. And so the left, right thing makes our party problems worse because our parties themselves are decrepit and irresponsible. I'm just wondering where you guys come down on that stuff. Yeah, th that's very much a Verlin question. So let me just chime in here really quick. Um, first of all, um, we often get the pushback uh, that, look, we elites, the Jonah Goldbergs, the Verlin Lewises, the Hiram Lewises, we get it. We understand. But the, the but the masses need the left-right spectrum because they're not smart enough to see. It's, it's, but it turns out all the evidence shows that this is an elite phenomenon. It's college professors who are most likely to believe in the myth of left and right, who are most likely to believe in political monism, who are most likely to believe that all of politics is a contest between progress and reaction. So 
So to get to your point, what's wrong with the parties? <laughs> because party elites control the party and the party elites believe in this myth. And then the second thing, you mentioned the incentives. The parties have every incentive to promote the lift, myth of left and right. I mean, look, if you got a fund raising letter uh, from the Democratic Party and said, look, the Democratic Party stands a whole bu- stands for a whole bunch of unrelated things, and we hope you agree with enough of them to contribute. You're not very likely to donate. But if you get a fundraising letter that says, help us advance the cause of progress and fight the right-wing evil fascist forces of reaction, you're much more likely to get donations. So the point being that the parties have every incentive in the world to promote the myth of left and right because it gives the delusion of coherence to unrelated positions. And that delusion of coherence is very good for party loyalty. It's very good for party fundraising. It's very good for the the institutional incentives that parties have. But Verlin, I'm really excited to hear what you have to say about this. Well, yeah, I mean, so I, you will not be surprised to know that I'm a fan of, uh, you know, James Madison and Martin Van Buren having done my PhD with Jim Caesar at the University of Virginia. Oh, it's all coming together now. I, I've <laughs> target acquired. <laughs> You're a Caesarite. So okay, I was, go on. <laughs> you know, teaching my students this week, actually, about Federalist 10, and we were talking about pluralism. And Madison is a fan of pluralism as opposed to monism. He says, you know, the danger of democracy is majority tyranny. And the way you get majority tyranny is if you think there's only two groups in society, because the one group will, that will has 51% or more will tyrannize the minority. The way to avoid this is through pluralism, a multiplicity, a plurality of factions and interest groups so that no one group ever has a majority. And, you know, Martin Van Buren saw the potential dangers arising from demagoguery, from someone like Andrew Jackson. He said, well, let's have kind of broad coalitional parties that can restrain kind of the worst impulses of these um, these factions. And I think that system worked pretty well in American history for a long time. Uh, and then, you know, in the, ni- the 1970s came along and the parties abdicated their responsibility to choose presidential nominees. And Jim Caesar wrote a book in 1979 warning that this was going to end badly. And so the uh, the surprise wasn't that we got uh, Donald Trump in 2016. It's that it took 40 years to get someone like Donald Trump. I mean, this could have happened before because the parties had abdicated their responsibility. They said, we're just going to have primaries. And so now you're opening it up to demagoguery. You're opening it up to celebrity politicians. And if the left-right framework is the most dominant way that people view politics, then the way to become really beloved by the partisan voters in a primary is to be really hated by the other political party, right? And so the things that, you know, Donald Trump was this goon, he's this buffoon, he's this carnival barker. He, no one really thought of him as a political figure until 2016 he runs. And he starts saying all this stuff that's just insane. And, you know, Team Blue just pounces on him and Democrats are just, you know, criticizing him all over the place. And all the, it turns out all these gaffes were not a bug, they were a feature. They made him more beloved by the party base because it wasn't about his issue positions. I mean, all of his issue positions were diametrically opposed to what Republicans and Team Red used to believe and say they cared about. It was the fact that he was so hated by Team Blue that made him so beloved by Team Red. And so I think we're going to continue to get people like him in the future because the best way to be beloved in the left-right framework is to be hated by, by this. So this negative partisanship, I think, is driving a lot of the problems in our politics right now. Yeah, I agree with that entirely. The only place I disagree with either of you guys on this point was when Hiram said that the elites who are besotted with the left-right thing control the parties. Would that the elites control the parties would be better, right? I mean, um, uh, the problem is is that 
the parties are basically marketing operations at this point. And um, it's the people who show up at the primaries who are the most intensely bought into this stuff. And the party's position is the customer is always right. So, you know, there go the people, I must go with them for I am their leader kind of thing. And, um, but otherwise, yeah, I, I think we're on the same page about all that. Well, no, and I think we're on the same page on that too, because I was using elites in a very broad sense. <laughs> Again, elites in the sense that they are intensely political. They are always watching, you know, politics and that they have influence in the party it makes them elites in a very broad sense. But, but you're right. I agree with you on that. Fair enough. All right. Um, thank you guys for doing this. This was fun. I can't promise that I'm just going to completely jettison the left, right thing after, after all of this. Uh, but I will take it under advisement and I will be more cautious, even if it makes my writing less felicitous and euphonious because I'll have to constantly define my terms more. Um, I still defend private definitions uh, to the hilt. You have not moved me off of that in the slightest. Other than that, this was great. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Jonah. Our pleasure. I think it's the most we can hope for. Okay, so that was fun. Uh, Hiram and Verlin have left the studio, and um, I can't say they haven't convinced me. I just can't say that it's... Um, it's like one of these things like... Uh, you know, my frustration for years, frustration for libertarians for decades um, of how liberal liberal doesn't mean liberal anymore. And sometimes words just get away from you. I think probably this moment, more than any other moment in my lifetime, the word liberal is coming back towards its actual meaning. Still probably not for the average person, but for people who talk about this stuff seriously, people kind of get what you mean when you say, you know, I'm a, I'm a liberal in a way that... They didn't before because liberal and progressive shouldn't mean the same thing. They certainly understand when you say illiberal, what you're getting at isn't isn't necessarily about the left right thing. Anyway, I think the left right thing is we're stuck with it for a long time. I think they're absolutely persuasive, and it's a really interesting book, and it's very good. I think they're very persuasive about the problems with it, and um, it's going to be rattling around in my head for quite a while. I'm more immune to some of the argument than a lot of people because uh, I, I think. I've been making some of these points for a very long time about how the left-right thing distorts. That was, again, that was the whole point of liberal fascism in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, this idea that somehow Milton Friedman is akin to Adolf Hitler, um, that's been my jam for a very long time about how ridiculous that is. But uh, I do highly recommend the book. You should check it out. There's some great intellectual history to it. And I will take it further under advisement. So with that... Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.